So we turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. And uh, just as a kind of preliminary uh, comment before we begin this morning, um, I have always enjoyed uh, preaching these uh, Advent messages. Uh, I find this section of all of Scripture uh, and the whole sense of the season to be one that um, has always been very, very meaningful to me. But it's also meaningful by way of the tremendous contrast with respect to how we understand uh, the coming of Christ and then how the world in all of its ways attempts to deny uh, the significance of this one who came into human history. So we begin to Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding uh, to this wonderful and familiar passage. We pray it would speak to us of those things that would make, again, this time of the year most meaningful to us and strengthen our faith and our desire to know Jesus more deeply. Father, so many in this world do not know Christ, and so many in this world pass through this season uh, with a kind of emptiness, loneliness, and brokenness that we know cannot be found uh, in any kind of human relationship or any kind of uh, crazy activity or any kind of addiction. Uh, Father, we know that the brokenness of the world can only be and has only been resolved in Christ. And so we pray that our worship and celebration and walking by faith through this season would be trusting in your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.
So this morning, I want to begin with a question. If you didn't have to celebrate Christmas, would you? Or even stronger, since we really don't have to celebrate Christmas, that is, there's no biblical injunction, no biblical requirement to do so, then why do we? And as you think about that personally, as I've thought about that many, many times, the answer that I would give would be something like this. Well, this season is an opportunity to stand as a Christian against the world in such a manner that we're bearing witness to the truth and the fight that we have, the spiritual fight that we have against secularism, that is, against the cultural forces that in all sorts of ways would seek to obscure or to hide or even to revise the historical reality of the nativity, the very coming of Christ into this world. That is to say, I've always thought this is an important way of looking at it. We could call it culture wars. We could call it an important fight. But we could also see it as an important opportunity to stand for something and to witness for something and against something with respect to what is going on in our culture, which is really in every way the secularization of our culture, the secularization that is working against the true meaning of Christmas. And so when I think about that secularism, in my own mind, I have sort of divided into four kinds of things that I see and that you see taking place. I think about secularism that tries to castigate the meaning of Christmas, the kind of cynicism, that bah humbug, the kind of dismissal of Christianity, which almost has a kind of malice or even hatred of the Christian faith and even of Christ. So that's a kind of secular force that we see within our culture. Far more prominent and far more dominant would be the commercialization of the meaning of Christmas. I mean, for retailers, this is the best time of the year. The American people, their willingness to go into debt becomes their economic stimulus package. I think about that. And we all as Christians just sort of hate the way we see Christmas being commercialized. But there's also been a longstanding kind of substitution of the true meaning of Christmas with a different kind of meaning of Christmas. You know, in the last 150 years in America, we have seen this come in and really first become part of a Christian witness to Christmas. And then it has overtaken and replaced that. And that would be the American versions of Father Christmas, that is Santa Claus, along with the introduction of reindeer, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And then all of these Christmas elves and then the Grinches that steal Christmas and so forth. We've seen this happen within our culture, a replacement of the authentic with something else, a kind of fantasy version and all sorts of things going along with that. But the one that still dominates the kind of substitution or the kind of secularization would be when culture romanticizes the meaning of Christmas, when they make this season symbolic, but they disengage the symbolism from its original historical roots. That is to say, they romanticize this season as a time of great family gatherings, of friendship 
reunions, uh, spirit of giving, snow and fireplaces, sleighs and Christmas trees and evergreen wreaths and silver bells and 40 Hallmark movies to drive all of this home. There have been a whole set of songs that have developed to reinforce this romantic ideal. Uh, the classic ones that you may be aware of. Uh, Christmas is the warmest time of the year. It's December's 4th of July. Or chestnuts roasting on an open fire with Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Or I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones we used to know that none of us have ever really experienced in California. Uh, I'll be home for Christmas, uh, if only in my dreams. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. Tis the season to be jolly. Uh, most of us don't really have any connection with that, but we're happy to think about it and sing about it and to hear it. Or the one that I think captures all of this is have yourself a merry little Christmas. Well, in all of this romanticism, in all of this way in which Christmas is interpreted, uh, we see that Emotions, sentiments are deeply captured. It, and there's something that's, as it were, very, um, I don't want to use the word seductive, but there's something that really tugs at our hearts in all of this. There's, there's something very human. It, there's something in these songs that touch a deep longing within all of us. Uh, certainly, uh, we as Christians can can identify with non-Christians who who really have this this desire to see um, the human experience uh, have something like this to have those happy and golden days of yore. It, it reaches into the deepest longings that we have as human beings to have deep loving relationships in life without stress and conflict, uh, without dangers without death. Uh, it touches us during this season, how we wish we had life without COVID, life without a divided country, uh, life that isn't so broken racially and morally and politically and spiritually. And, and we would long for what these songs all seem to picture, which is simply to say that we as Christians can sympathize and identify with the romanticized version of the Christmas season. Now, here's the problem, though, without romantic about romanticizing Christmas. It, in a final analysis, it's fully secular. It presents life, golden and wonderful, but it presents that kind of life apart from Christ. And you and I know that apart from Christ, such a life can never exist. And so that really means that without the real Christmas story, romanticism is a deception and it is an illusion. All the things that romanticism tries to convey, uh, unless truly somewhere there is a happily ever after, unless such a reality does exist, uh, romanticism remains an empty way to celebrate Christmas. But that's why this text and all the Advent texts and the entire message of Scripture is so important. And that really brings us to what is my main point this morning. Although you and I as Christians may 
long for the romantic meaning of Christmas. We may even identify with how much secular people uh, have such a longing for this kind of an experience. It's only the true meaning of Christmas that will ever give people any kind of genuine hope or meaning or significance in this broken and fallen world. Which also means that the only way you and I can properly combat the secularization of this season is to focus our attention and our celebration on the true meaning of the advent of Christ. Uh, But before we look at the text this morning, we need to remember the context. And so if you look at verse 26 quickly, here is the beginning of what the angel says. Here's the beginning of Luke's narrative. It begins in the sixth month. And that places this passage, that places Gabriel's visitation to Mary in a very specific time in history. Because that sixth month refers to the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, uh, the wife of the priest Zacharias. Remember earlier in Luke, uh, he first tells the story of how this same angel appeared to Zachariah, uh, who in his priestly responsibilities was serving in the temple in that place where they serve alone, where they bring incense before the Lord. And so there, in the privacy of being alone in the temple, Gabriel announces to Zechariah that in answer to his prayers and the prayers of his wife Elizabeth, that God is going to heal the barrenness, that God is going to heal her barrenness and give her a son. And they are to name him John. And that this child is going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He's going to be used of God to turn people back to God. And then to prepare them for the coming of the Lord, even to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And so now it is six months later. And that same angel, Gabriel, comes to the young woman, Mary, who belongs to the tribe of Judah, who is herself a descendant of the great King David through David's son, Nathan. And Gabriel has an even more significant message now to deliver. And we ought to recognize this message as the very last Advent sermon in Scripture before the actual Advent of Christ. Because if we read the Bible truly as the Word of God, and if we believe Jesus, who taught his disciples that all of the Old Testament scripture spoke of him, then we know that the advent of Christ, the advent of the Messiah, was preached and prophesied and heralded many, many times earlier. From the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, where we read about the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head, to the last book of the Old Testament, where in Malachi chapter 3, it's written that the Lord, who is designated as the messenger of the covenant, would come suddenly to his temple and then identified in chapter 4 as the son of righteousness who would rise with healing in his wings to bless the faithful of Israel and to bring judgment on the house of Israel to those who arrogantly continue in their evil against the Lord. So we've had the first announcement of Christmas. We've had the last announcement in terms of the canonical Old Testament scripture. But now we have the very last advent sermon. 400 years have passed. There's been not a word at all prophetically, but now Gabriel comes, visits Mary to deliver this final Advent sermon. So it isn't too poetic to see Gabriel as a preacher and Mary as his congregation of one, to hear uh, the king announced 
and to hear about this child who's going to be the king forevermore. And further, if you will just bear with me, we can dress Gabriel up as a Presbyterian preacher, which is to say his message is going to have three main points and his message are going to alliterate. And so we have the majesty of his destiny and then we have the miracle of his entrance into the world and then we have the mystery of his nature. In any case, without outlining what we're going to say, our concern this morning is to remind ourselves only in the true meaning of the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the very salvation of Christ, do we have any genuine hope in a broken and fallen world. There's no other place to look, but there's no other place that we need to look except in Christ. Now, to begin with, the first thing that Gabriel is going to announce is the majesty of the destiny of this child that's going to be born. Gabriel's first point to Mary is essentially this. Your son is the destined Messiah. Your son is destined to be king of the Jews. Your son is also destined to be your majesty. So we look at verses 31 to 33. Gabriel says, You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Now the question is, what did this mean to Mary? And and the answer is that to any Jew, such an angelic visit with such a message could only mean one thing that Gabriel was speaking of the promised Messiah. And to any Jew of that day, a a, a veritable multitude of passages uh, out of the Hebrew Bible would quickly come to mind. And so in particular, we can think about 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. We can think about several parts of Psalm 89. We can think about Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Mary would have known these messianic prophecies very well, And without even any effort, they would have come to her mind in terms of hearing Gabriel's uh, Gabriel's sermon to her. So in the first place, 2 Samuel 7, 16, where the prophet there speaks to David and says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, these are God's words through the prophet to King David, you know, a full thousand years before Gabriel's message to Mary. And and here God is promising that the throne of David and David's kingdom would last forever. Now, we know this to be the, the case. We know this is the proper interpretation because what shows up in Psalm 89, a psalm that was written not by David, but by another one of the psalm writers, composed not too long afterwards. And it's really a commentary upon this prophecy and the prophetic words given to David concerning the coming of the Messiah. And so in chapter 89, Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. And then later, verses 28 and 29, God says, 
I will maintain my love to David forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. So there we have the promise to David that he's going to have an eternal kingdom. And finally, verses 35 to 37, we read again. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, and its throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever, like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. So uh, we have these verses, and, and among many that we find in the Old Testament, but in many ways the capstone of this particular theme that God is going to send to the house of David a son who's going to be king, a son who's going to be on the king, upon the throne and reign forever. The, the capstone of all of that found in the book of Isaiah, and in particular Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. These are familiar words. Uh, Handel's Messiah has made them particularly notable for those who have listened to that great piece of music again and again. But we read, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, now Mary, hearing about the son to be born to her, would recognize that her son is going to be fulfillment of this particular destiny foretold in these prophecies. Yet, for more than 500 years now, prior to, to Mary's lifetime, there had been no son of David, no Davidic king, no no one of the line ruling over Israel. And yet now she's told that in her son, the majesty of the line of David would be restored. And not just restored, but surpassed with a permanent majesty. That majesty of the Messiah's never-ending kingdom. Her son would be the king who would rule forever. But hearing this, what brought the greatest sense of joy to her, to Israel, to any who would understand this message, was not just that a king would come, and not just any king, but a good king, the best king, a king that would be even greater than the best king of Israel, King David. A king who would come in all perfection. A king who would come in all glory. A king who would come fully bringing true justice to Israel. True justice to all the nations. That's where the hope lies. Someone who would bring truth and righteousness and justice into a very broken world. And and that's that's part of the glory of the message that Gabriel is giving to Mary. Your son is that destined king. 
the majesty of all the promises will be fulfilled in him. He is the desired hope of the world. Now, the second point we find in terms of what Gabriel presents to Mary is really the miracle of, of his entrance into the world, the miracle of the virgin birth. So in the midst of, of Gabriel declaring the majesty of the destiny of this son, Gabriel also declares to Mary, verse 31, that her son will come in this miraculous way. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So Mary hears that, and in verse 34, she interrupts Gabriel's message with this question. Well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? You see, Mary knows her biblical history. She knows all of the earlier annunciations and birth stories of those special births announced in the scriptures. She knows that in, in all the cases, the mothers of those specially promised children were married women. In fact, they were very married women, which is to say they are women who had been married for very many years and who had tried to have children any number of times and yet they were barren. They had not been able to conceive. They had not been able to give to their husbands a son. And we think about Abraham and Sarah. Uh, she had been barren all throughout her adult life. And it is when she is an old woman that she receives the word from the Lord that she's going to have a child. And then we read about Isaac and Rebekah in the very next generation. And, and she likewise has a long period of barrenness after they're married before she has a child. And God announces to her that she's going to have those twins, uh, Jacob and Esau. And then further on during the time of the judges, we read about uh, Manoah and his wife, the, the parents of Samson. She too had been barren. And then at the very end of the time of the judges, we read about Elkanah and Hannah, who are the parents of Samuel and how she had experienced the, 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 the terrible condition for her of being barren. Now, in all of these stories, there is a pattern of God blessing, finally, very married women who had been very barren for a long time, married many years, suffered through this barrenness for many years before God finally answered their prayers. And, and that's why Mary wonders God had always, always worked his miraculous births through married women who had suffered this barrenness for many years so that the child born was, was an answer to prayer. Now, and furthermore, Mary doesn't actually say, since I'm a virgin, but rather she says, since I know not a man. That is to say, how can this be? Since I don't fit the pattern. I'm not yet married. I don't even know that I have barrenness. And therefore, I am deeply confused. And, and that is what makes the message of Gabriel so significant. It is one thing for God to open the barren womb of a married woman. It is quite another for God to act in an entirely unique fashion. 
And so we read this in verses 37, 35 to 37, where God explains the miracle through Gabriel of the virgin birth. Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And so in other words, Gabriel is saying to Mary, you do not need a man for this miracle to occur. God will do an act of creation directly by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the Most High God. God will do this. He will create life directly in your womb. This will be the miracle of your son's entrance into this world. And now your relative Elizabeth, with her, God has used the old pattern of miraculously opening her womb. But with you, Mary, most highly favored of all women, God is with you and God is doing this new thing, this new miracle for nothing shall be impossible with God. Now, this last statement of God's message, that nothing will be impossible with God, it's the other side of the first principle of true theology. That is to say, the very first principle that we must know about God is this. All things are possible with God. Jesus declared this truth to his disciples after teaching a significant truth about salvation. Uh, if you turn to Mark chapter 10 and you began in verse 24, you'd be reading Jesus addressing his disciples this way. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And in astonishment, they ask, then, then who can be saved? To which Jesus replies, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. That's the first thing about the biblical uh, testimony about God and his true nature. There is nothing at all uh, that God can't do. All things are possible with God. But the very last statement of this truth about God is this. It's what Gabriel says to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. You see, if it's true that all things are possible with God, then it logically follows that nothing will be possible, impossible with God. For as God said through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Nothing is too difficult for me. And this is the word that satisfied Mary's faith and removed all of her confusion. Nothing will be impossible with God. And that is why Mary could respond this way. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me 
according to your word. And here is Mary's faith, grounded in God's truth. And here is Mary's submission and obedience, grounded in the word of God. And here is Mary, most highly favored of all women, as an example that we should follow. That when we truly believe that all things are possible with God, and that nothing will ever prove impossible for him, that he is truly the God of all flesh, and nothing is too difficult for him, then we will show this by how we believe and how we pray, and that we would be willing to say, Lord, let it be to me according to your word, according to your word of grace and mercy and providence. Lord, I want to be your servant. Let all the things that you do to direct and guide my life, let them be unto me. For you are the God for whom nothing is impossible at all. Now, further in connection with the miraculous nature of the entrance of Jesus into this world, there is the double significance of the virgin conception and birth, both related to the fulfillment of prophecy. So first of all, Isaiah 7:14, where the virgin birth is first predicted. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So here it is stated that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. But then why a virgin? Well, because of an earlier prophecy, because of the very first prophecy, Genesis 3.15, about the seed of the woman and that this seed would crush the serpent's head. So in order to be the Messiah, in order to be the seed of the woman, that is to say, the only way to have that unique designation the only way to be the seed of the woman and not commonly the seed of the man or the seed of any other person, the only way to bear this title perfectly and properly was to be born of a woman only and therefore to be born of a virgin and therefore to be born supernaturally in this manner. And all of this together, emphasizing, presenting to us the miraculous entrance of Christ into this world. Now, finally, Gabriel's third great point, which really flows out of the second, and that is the mysterious nature of the nature of the son born to Mary. Gabriel has declared to Mary that her son will simultaneously be God's son, too. So rereading verses 32, 33, and 35 and putting them together, we read, He, meaning your son, whom you are to call Jesus, he's going to be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Now, with these words from Gabriel, 
that prophecy of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 takes on its full meaning. Reading it again, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So Gabriel is declaring to Mary the mystery of the incarnation. Her son, whom she is to name Jesus, which means God saves, will be both the son of the woman and the son of God at one and the same time. And this is how the kingdom of the Messiah is going to be an everlasting kingdom. It's because the son of Mary is going to be so much more than some extraordinary man. He is going to be everything that the exalted titles of Isaiah 9 actually signify. He's going to truly be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. He's going to be the everlasting father. He's going to be the prince of peace. Or as Gabriel specifies in verse 35, he's going to be the son of God. And what this means And the Hebrew understanding of these things is this, that all that God is, the Messiah will be as well. He's going to be the truest possible fulfillment of the title Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, Jesus, true God and true man. And no matter how difficult it is for us to grasp the mysterious nature of the person of Christ in terms of full humanity and full deity. Nevertheless, the scriptures are clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us for a while, and we have beheld his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son, who is God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And that's our confession of faith. It's our confession of truth. It is the confession by which we believe and are saved. And it is the hope that we have in this life. It is the only ultimate anchor for our lives. God has come down to us to be with us, to be one of us from the cradle to the cross, to live the life we could not live, to die the death we could not die so that sin and evil would be destroyed. With the only certain hope we have to look forward to that the eternal kingdom of Jesus will come in its fullness to this world and to bring far more than any of the romantic notions that we could ever conceive or dream of Christ coming to reign fully as the Prince of Peace so that we're able to say in all of its fullness no more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as 
the curse is found. Now I began by presenting to you the romantic notion of Christmas. We have looked really at the biblical meaning of the advent of Christ. And I want to wrap this up by really bringing us the comparison and contrast between the representatives of, of these two perspectives. I want us to look at a romantic Christmas song and then something that's fairly recent in terms of an Advent and Christmas song. So I want to begin with reading to you the words and walking through the words of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And it's actually one that I love. I, I love this song so much. But apart from Christ, it is empty. But reading. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yule tide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more. Through the years, we all will be together if the fates allow. Hang a shining star upon the highest bough and have yourself a merry little Christmas now. Now, the invitation is so sweet. It's the invitation to have a merry little Christmas. And therefore, we are invited to let your hearts be light. And then you're promised this experience. From now on, all your troubles are going to be out of sight. And the promise is repeated in the next stanza. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. And then the promise continues. We're promised that we can be today as it was in olden days, as in the golden days of yore where faithful friends dear to us will gather near to us once more. But more than that, we're promised that this will be the way of togetherness through all the future years, but on this condition, if the fates allow. The idea of fate comes from the old pagan idea that what governs life and history is not a personal and providential God who loves us, but the blind forces of nature. Not nature as science sees nature, but nature as the astrologer sees nature. Mysterious forces in the world, in the stars, in the cosmos that govern all of life. More like blind luck. But it isn't anything you can depend upon. It isn't anything that you can trust. Nevertheless, you should still seek this romantic experience and declare your intention to do so by hanging a shining star upon the highest bough, not the star of Bethlehem. No, simply a bright star of nature. And then consider the contrast with this song, whose lyrics were written by Mark Lowry, to a melody composed and first recorded by Buddy Green, a PCA musician that goes this way. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? 
Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to the blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? That when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God? Mary, did you know? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again. The lame will leap, the dumb will speak the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? This sleeping child you hold is the great I am. Brothers and sisters, here romanticism meets reality. The reality that we all long for is found in Christ. The majesty of his destiny, the miracle of his entrance into this world, and the mystery of the truth that in Christ we have Emmanuel, God with us forevermore. And this is our happily ever after. The satisfaction, the deepest longing of our hearts to know this sleeping child that we see in the manger is the great I am. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, please, Almighty God, make our hearts in the midst of this season, whatever we're up against, make our hearts rest in the truth of what Christmas is all about, the coming of your Son into this world. And to revere him, to know him, to love him, to serve him, to trust him, and to know that whatever we face, you are the God who has declared to Mary and to all of us, nothing will be impossible for you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.